0: Our focus this morning is going to be verses 17 through 29, but I'm going to read the entire chapter just for context. So Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds." eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and praise to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God, For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, And between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Well, one thing that I think is pretty obvious when you look at human nature is that people long for security. Now, whether that's economic security or job security or relational security or even health security, the truth of the matter is that as human beings, we want to be secure. Doesn't matter how much of a risk taker uh, some people may be in certain areas of their lives, there is also a deep-seated need for security. In fact, if we feel so secure in some particular area of our lives, it may lead then to to being more calculated in our risk-taking in some other areas of our lives. For example, if you have built up for yourself, let's say, a significant retirement nest egg, you may feel a little more justified uh, making some riskier investments with some of your disposal income, something that you definitely wouldn't do if you were living paycheck to paycheck, right? But, however, I think this idea of security can also lead to a false sense of security the feeling that you that your security can protect you against unnecessary un- unnecessarily risky activities you, i think you see it a lot of times where you see you know it, it doesn't seem to matter it's like the larger the car you get it seems like sometimes the more reckless you drive because you feel like if you're inside this ginormous you know tank you're somehow secure against the oncoming semi as you're trying to pass in traffic. You know, that semi is going to roll over that giant SUV like a grape, right? Uh, the idea is sometimes you can have a false sense of security. And I think that's what you're seeing here in Romans two seventeen through 29, is a false sense of security. Now, just again as a reminder, we're in the middle of Paul's Uh, First major section in Romans as he is dealing with the revealing of God's righteousness and his wrath against sinners. Again, this begins in chapter 1 verse 18, continues all the way through chapter 3 verse 20. As we saw a few weeks back in chapter 1 uh, verses 18 through 32, we saw God's righteousness revealed in his wrath against Gentiles as he gives them over to their sin. And now here, starting in chapter 2, going all the way through chapter 3, verse 8, God's, we're going to see God's righteousness revealed against his covenant people, his chosen ones, the Jewish people. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at Romans 2, 1 through 5, and Paul begins his attack. He begins to attack the Jewish false sense of security in their national identity. We said this before, but it bears repeating the Jews had sort of gotten themselves into a way of thinking that they thought uh, in which that they believed that somehow they were exempt from God's judgment simply because they were the chosen people, simply because they were God's people, the, the, the Jews, his covenant people. And they were Jews, right? They were sons of Abraham. They were disciples of Moses. They were recipients of God's blessings. And you may think, well, did the Jews really think this? Did they really think that somehow that they would be exempt from God's punishment? And I think the answer to that question is yes. If you'd like, you can turn in your Bibles. I don't know if I have it in the notes. I do not. You can turn in your Bibles if you'd like to Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 7. This is the part in Matthew's gospel where we see the ministry of John the Baptist, and he starts his ministry baptizing in the wilderness beyond the Jordan, and it says, starting in verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire." His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You can turn back to Romans 2. It's clear there from what, how John sort of berates the Pharisees and the Sadducees that they felt that they were secure in their national identity. But John tells them, don't think that you can hide behind the fact that you're children of Abraham, because if God wanted children of Abraham, he can make them right now out of the stones on the ground. So in Romans 2, 1 through 5, Paul tells the Jews that when you're pointing your fingers at the Gentiles, like he says, says, therefore, you are an excusable man who judge, and for whatever you judge, you judge, you condemn yourself, or you who judge practice the same things. In other words, as Paul was condemning the Gentiles in chapter 1, the Jew had been right there saying, Yes, Paul, preach it. Amen. Yes, they are to be judged. And Paul's saying, okay, watch out. When you point that finger at them, you've got four more pointing back at you, right? That's the whole idea. It's like, don't think that you will escape the wrath to come. The kindness and patience of God wasn't a sign that God was sort of letting go their sin, winking at them, uh, but rather was a sign that, they should, that should have led them to repentance, The the fact that God was dealing kindly with them was because they were his people, but they were not going to be exempt from the judgment. God's wrath was currently being revealed against the Gentiles, but it was being held back against the Jews by the the dam of God's righteous, uh, by the dam of God's patience and forbearance. But that dam would break on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment would be revealed. That's Paul's warning to them in verses 1 through 5. And then verses 6 through 16, which we looked at last week, uh, Paul then gives us what we, what we said last week, who principles of God's judgment. And the first principle being, you see this in verses 6 through 11, is that judgment will be based on works. You will be judged based on what you do in this life, whether you do good, whether you do evil. If you do good, you will receive eternal life. If you do evil, you will receive eternal punishment. And we looked at a number of passages that prove this principle out. But we also talked about how the good works that Paul refers to are actual acts of obedience. Obedience that God will reward. But he does so because he rewards them in Christ. We are already righteous in Christ. We believe that. We don't think that somehow we can earn this righteousness in our our own selves. But it is given to us freely by, by grace through faith. And then it is out of that that we actually do acts of righteousness. But as we said last week. Even these acts of righteousness are imperfect, but God is pleased to accept them in Christ. We gave you the example of the little drawing that your child or your grandchild makes of you, and you you proudly put that on the refrigerator because you love your child, not because it is a great piece of art, but you love your child, so you're going to display that proudly. That's how God looks and receives our imperfect, our fumbling, bumbling, stumbling acts of obedience. And then in verses 12 through 16, we also saw that God will judge people on the light light that they have received. The Jews will be judged according to the law because they have been given the law. The Gentiles will be judged without the law because they do not have the law, but they will be judged on the law that is written on their hearts. This is human conscience. This is part of being created in the image of God. We have a conscience. And though it is fallen, though it is marred, we still have a conscience. And by God's common grace, we do not behave as wickedly as we could and God's common grace restrains our sinful impulses so that even in unbelieving world you could see progress to an extent you could see morality to an extent it's not a perfect morality and it's not done for the glory of God so it's not something that will be worthy of reward in the in the end days but it is still a outwardly kind of good that you see Now, as we look at verses 17 through 29, Paul is going to sort of redouble his attacks at the Jewish false sense of security and their national identity. And he's going to do so by attacking two very important um, pieces of Jewish identity. One is their their sort of uh, reliance on the law, and the other is their reliance on circumcision. So he's going to talk about the law in verses 17 through 24, And he's going to talk about uh, circumcision in verses 25 through 29. So as we look at verses 17 through 24, uh, we're going to see Paul attack the false sense of security that the Jews had in the law. And what essentially you're going to see here in these verses is a failure of the Jews to practice what they preach. That's kind of what's going on here. A failure to practice what they preach. First, look again at verses 17 through 20, where he says, Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. Now, here Paul is outlining many of the blessings that the Jews had by virtue of them being Jewish. Okay, again, we don't want to ignore the fact that, yes, they were God's chosen people. Yes, they were the recipients of God's blessings. And, and as a as result, they have a lot then to sort of answer for. Again, like I said last week, with great power comes great responsibility. With great blessing, again, comes great responsibility. Now, of course, the first blessing they had was they were Jews. They were indeed God's chosen people. God did single out Abram out of all the people on the earth to make a covenant with. God singled out Abram. uh, He chose Abram to be the vehicle of his blessing to all the nations. We see this early on in Genesis, in the call of Abram, where it says in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, Now the Lord said to Abram, Nothing, (laughs) nothing at all. God chose Abram out of the goodness of his own grace and mercy and kindness. There was nothing worthy about Abram that made him better than anybody else. It was purely a gracious move on God's part. But it was also the fulfillment of a promise that he made all the way back in the garden. Genesis 3.15 the, the seed promise, the, the mother promise, the the proto-gospel that you see all the way in Genesis 3 where God in cursing the serpent uh, after, the, after Adam and Eve had eaten the fruit, God pronounces curses on the serpent, on the woman, and on the man. But as he's pronouncing a curse on the serpent in Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He that is, the offspring of the woman shall, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, Abraham was in the line of that promise. He was of the seed of the woman. You see this all throughout those, those genealogies in Genesis. Genesis 5 and Genesis 10, as it's tracing the line from, from Adam down to Noah, down to Abraham. It's, it's the godly line. It's the seed of the woman being traced out through the Old Testament. Abraham or Abram was in the line of promise. He was the seed of the woman. Further evidence of the choosing of the Jewish people, that the choosing of the Jewish people was purely a gracious act of God, can be found in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 8, where it says there, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Again, the Jewish people had no external qualities that would sort of make them look pleasing in God's sight. It was solely based on the covenant love that God had made, the promise that he made with their forefathers, with Abraham with Isaac, with Jacob. In fact, when God in Exodus uh, 1 or 2, it says that he heard the cries of his people. It was, And then he says that he remembered the covenant that he made with their forefathers. wasn't that God forgot, but it was the idea is that God is acting out of that covenant promise that he made to the forefathers in rescuing his people from slavery. But that does not discount the fact that being God's chosen people was indeed a great privilege. It was indeed a great privilege. I mean, you see all the talk today, of course, now as you hear about white privilege or this privilege or that privilege. Well, the Jews had Jewish privilege, okay? They were the chosen people of God. They had great privilege. They had great blessings. And, And it shows here the fact that they were chosen. The second big privilege that they had being part of God's people is that they had the law. Again, we talked about this a bit last week. The Jews were the recipients of the law of God. God gave them his righteous standards of conduct on Mount Sinai. This is no small matter. While the Gentiles have the law written on their hearts, as we saw last week, we also discussed that this conscience or this inherent sense of right and wrong is marred due to the fall. It is, a, it is an imperfect guide to righteousness, to say the least. And again, like we said earlier, God's common grace present, prevents fallen humanity from being as bad as it can be. But the law written on our hearts cannot lead one to a saving faith in God. You cannot get to God by following your conscience. The, whole, the, the line, follow your heart, isn't going to do you any good. But the law was given to the Jews as an example of God's special revelation. When we talk about special revelation, we're referring, of course, to the Bible. The Bible is God's special revelation. It is God speaking to man directly and clearly through the words of Scripture. But we also believe that special revelation is, there's more than what you see in the Bible. The Bible is a written record of God's special revelation, but revelation, uh, there's a lot that was revealed to the people of God that was not written down. We're going to start a series on the Gospel of John. What does John say at the end of his Gospel? He says, Jesus did many more acts and signs that I have recorded here. And if I were to record all of them, it would fill all the books that you could ever imagine. Now, he's probably being a little hyperbolic, but the idea is that there's a lot more that God revealed to his people than is contained here in the Scriptures. But the Scriptures are, of course, God's special revelation. God directly revealed his righteous standards to Moses on Sinai, who in turn then brought the law down to the people. They had the divinely inspired law of God, not the faulty law written on the human heart. And as such, it says here in verse 18, they knew his will and they were able to approve things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. There is no better teacher than the revealed will of God, right? There is no better way to learn truth than to have it directly revealed to you from God. The Ten Commandments and the various other aspects of the Mosaic Law were a perfect guide for God's people. They were a perfect guide for faith and practice for God's people in that time. And with it, they were able to discern true right from true wrong. Okay? And they were able to discern between what is excellent and what is merely just good. So the law of God is that perfect standard that they had. But make no mistake, having God's own revelation is a tremendous blessing and a privilege for God's people that they then need to live out. And they weren't doing that. The third blessing that they had was that they were a light to the nations. And Paul talks about this in four ways in which the Jews were to be a light to the nations. He says they were to be a guide to the blind. The Jews as recipients and caretakers of the law were to guide those who were blind. And blind, of course, is a metaphor for being, you know, he's talking about spiritually blind, not literally blind. So people who are spiritually blind, who cannot see, who cannot perceive the things of God, the, the Jews were meant to be a guide to the blind. They were to be a light to the blind. And again, they were to be a light to those who are in darkness. Again, we see these terms, blindness and darkness. We've mentioned this in the past, but these are metaphors that talk about uh, spiritual blindness, spiritual darkness. Think about what, again, what Paul says in uh, Romans one twenty one, where he says, because, uh, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. That idea of darkness. They were to be a light shining in the darkness. They were to be God's instruments, God's ambassadors, God's uh, purveyors of truth to the the nations. The light of God's revelation will dispel the darkness of unbelief. And it goes on to say they were to be instructors of the foolish. Think about how many of the Proverbs say that to to learn wisdom is, is a cure for foolishness to uh, speak about wisdom instructing the foolish. And then they were also to be teachers of children. They were to teach their own children and presumably Gentile converts because that word children can also mean someone who is immature, someone who is immature in the faith. So an adult convert would be someone who is, you know, we call them babes in Christ, right? Meaning that you know they have a small little bit of knowledge and the idea is we need to train them up too, just like we would train up our children as well. But regarding the law, Jewish parents were instructed to raise their children in the law. That's what we see in Deuteronomy 6, uh, 7, where uh, God, again, through Moses says, you shall teach them diligently, your children, teach the law diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Now, all of these things here, they had the law, they were the chosen people, they were to be a light to the nations. All this led to a false sense of security based on the tremendous privileges that they had being the recipients of God's blessings. Now, as we look at verses 21 through 24, we see that this blessing of having the law didn't help them. Let's Just read that again, verses 21 through 24, where it says, You, therefore, he's speaking to the Jew, a hypothetical Jew, but he's speaking to the Jew. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. As we said earlier, they did not practice what they preached. They had the law, but it didn't do them any good because they didn't follow the law. Having the law is a blessing and a privilege, but if you don't practice what the law teaches, then you've essentially thrown the law out the window. It becomes useless to you. Again, remember what Paul had said in verse 13 of chapter 2. It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law that are justified. That's what James says, right? He says, don't be hearers of the law. Be doers of the law. Having the law and hearing the law read each week in synagogue isn't enough to protect you from the failure to do the law. Let's bring that into a Christian context. Coming to church each Sunday, hearing the word preached, singing praises to God isn't going to do you any good. If you don't, then go out Monday through Saturday and live this out in your lives. I'm not saying that we're guilty of that here, but in general, that's the idea is that if you hear the word preached, if you hear the gospel proclaimed, if you come to church each Sunday, but it doesn't affect your life in the here and now, in Monday through Saturday, it doesn't mean anything. You cannot hide behind, well, I believe in Christ. I've accepted the gospel. I've walked down the aisle. I've been baptized. Those are not excuses. We can fall into a sense of security ourselves, that false sense of security that is kind of tied into our Christian identity. So having the law and hearing the law read each week in the synagogue isn't enough to protect you from your failure to do the law. The Jews will not escape God's righteous judgment simply because they had the law. The law is no security against God's righteous judgment. If anything, having the law, like we've said before, makes them more culpable because they know (laughs) what the law says, yet by failing to do so, they are incurring judgment against themselves. Now, there's a list of sins here in verses 21 through 23, as some serious violations of the law, really, if you think about it. Um, you, know, you who say, do not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through your breaking of the law? Now, there's some question here, are we to understand these as literal violations of the law? Were the Jews literally doing these things, saying, don't steal, and then they were going and stealing, and don't, you know, don't, you know, don't commit adultery. And then they were going off and committing adultery. Um, Or or we see this as sort of similar to what Jesus says uh, to the people gathered in Matthew five, who came to hear the sermon on the Mount. And he gives them sort of a more clear teaching of what the law requires. That it's not just fulfilling outwardly what the law says, but also inwardly. So where he equates anger with murder, he equates lust with adultery it's like you may not be committing murder, but you have anger in your heart against your brother or sister? You may not be committing adultery, but are you lusting after your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's husband? Those kind of things. Well, I think, why can't we have our cake and eat it too, right? You know, why, why can't both be true? Maybe they were, you know, maybe it is this idea of they were sinning in their hearts but not sinning outwardly. Or maybe they were actually sinning outwardly. Maybe they were doing both. I mean, I think that's entirely possible, right? You know, again, it's certainly easy to see superficial understanding the law in which one outwardly conforms to the law, but is guilty of violating its spirit. We can certainly understand that. But as for committing some of the things that you see here in verses 21 through 23, consider what Micah had to say to the people of his day. Micah was a a prophet to the people of Israel right before the uh, deportation right before Israel fell to the Assyrian uh, Empire in 722 BC, uh, Micah prophesies to the people and he says in chapter 3, verse 11, its heads, that is the leaders of the people, its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean in the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Again, there's that idea of that false sense of security. The Lord's in our midst. No disaster will come upon us. Nothing's going to happen to us. We have the Lord on our side. But here you know, we show that the leaders of the people were accepting bribes to give a judgment that was favorable to the one giving the bribe. They were giving divination for money. They were teaching for profit. They were stealing from the people in a sense. They were abhorring the temple and all these things. Here we see that false sense of security played out where the leaders of Israel were were guilty of all sorts of vile things, yet they believed that the Lord was on their side and would deliver them. Yet the bottom line here of this section from 17 through 24 is that the law is no safety net for the Jews if they refuse to do what it teaches. You cannot hide behind the law if you continually break the law. That's the point. So now we move on into verses 25 through 29 to look at a false sense of security in circumcision. And this is another area in which the Jews had a false sense of security. It was in their circumcision. Uh, Just like the law, circumcision was another identifying mark, literally and figuratively, for the Jewish people. It was a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham back in Genesis 17. And in fact, to call someone uncircumcised, for a Jew to call someone uncircumcised was an insult. Basically, he's saying you're an outsider. You're not one of us. You're an uncircumcised heathen. Hence, you're not on God's side. That's kind of what they were saying. If you're uncircumcised, you're not of the people of God. You're not one of us. It is not a stretch to say that this attitude completely missed the point of what circumcision stood for. Yes, circumcision was a sign of the covenant, but as with all sacramental signs, New Testament sacraments included, it, it the sign points to a deeper spiritual reality. The the act of circumcision or the act of baptizing is not is a sign. It's a sign that points to a deeper spiritual reality. We don't believe In the sense that if you baptize someone, their sins are literally forgiven. It is a a sign that points to the promise that your sins are forgiven, that they're washed in the blood of Christ, and that you're incorporated into the body of Christ. The outward sign of circumcision is meant to point to an inward reality on the heart. If you can, keep your finger in Romans and turn over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. In him, that is in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You were buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made, has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Here, Paul is linking Old Testament circumcision with New Testament baptism. And he shows both to point to an inward reality, a circumcision made without hands is what he says here. The inward reality of circumcision was a heart that had its hardness removed so that it was submissive before the Lord. Just like having the law being outwardly circumcised is not enough. That's what Paul says in verse 25 of Romans chapter 2. You can turn back there. Where he says, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your your circumcision has become profitable uncircumcision. Note the connection between circumcision and obedience to the law. You can't have one without the other. A Jew who is circumcised yet failed to uphold the law, his circumcision effectively becomes an uncircumcision. In other words, his circumcision became an empty, useless ritual. It just became something he did. It didn't have any lasting effect in him. Paul, in speaking to the Galatian church, a church that was suffering from a Judaizing effect. Do do we know who the Judaizers were? The Judaizers, just to bring that back, to recall that to your memory, the Judaizers were a group of Jewish Christians who thought that in order to become a Christian, you had to first become a Jew. You had to be circumcised if you were a male, and you had to follow the legal requirements, and then you can become a Christian. And this kind of blew up. You see this blow up sort of in the book of Acts as Paul comes to Jerusalem to make his case that uh, Gentiles should not be circumcised. And you have the what I like to call the first... Uh, you know, I guess you can call it the you know the first Reformed Church synod back in, in 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 Acts chapter 15, where you had the Jerusalem Council and they had this big meeting and many people spoke and Paul spoke and Peter spoke and and finally a judgment was made that says no Gentiles do not have to be circumcised just as long as they don't eat meat offered to idols and etc etc etc. The Judaizers though were sort of infiltrating the Galatian church and and Peter was there and Paul berates peter because peter sort of when the judaizers came paul sort of stopped associating with the gentiles and and you know and then peter you know paul says to peter's like what are you doing He's, it's like you know you're, you're forgetting everything you've been taught well anyway galatians 5 3 paul says i testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated then to keep the whole law in other words what paul is saying is like look okay if you want to be circumcised." If you want to go ahead and accept this ritual, then you better start obeying the law because that's what's required of you. If you're going to go under the law and not under Christ, if you're going to ignore everything that Christ has given you, all the blessings that he's given you by faith, by grace through faith, if you're going to then circumcise yourself, you better then start keeping the law. Paul goes on further to assault the Jewish false sense of security in their circumcision in verses 26 and 27. He says, therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? It's like you think oh Jew that circumcision is going to save you? How about this? What if an uncircumcised Gentile keeps the law? What do you say about that, Mr. Jew? Does an uncircumcised Gentile lawkeeper all of a sudden become circumcised? That's what Paul that's the argument he's making. It's like it's like, you know, if you're not going to obey the law being circumcised, then your, unc- your circumcision is effectively uncircumcision. And then he says, and then how about this? How about if an uncircumcised Gentile comes in, obeys the law? What's he, What you know, he'd say, don't you get the picture here? It's like this person then will stand in judgment of you. He's keeping the law even though he doesn't have the circumcision that you have. Now, bringing this home to us, what does it say of our Christianity if a pagan unbeliever is better at obeying the word of God than we are? I mean, I think I may have mentioned this before, talking about, you know, you know, you read, you know, again, Romans chapter one, you think the Gentiles are just going to hell in a handbasket in the kind of way they kind of are. But there are moral people out in the world who are unbelievers. And I dare say there are some moral people out there who are unbelievers who are more moral than Christians are. I've seen unbelievers act in a way more righteously, outwardly speaking, than Christians do. We should be ashamed of that. That should not be the case. If you think that our obedience to the commands of Christ don't matter to the outside world, you better think again. Our obedience is part of our witness to the world. The uncircumcised gentile lawkeeper is a dagger in the heart to the Jewish false sense of security in the law and in their circumcision. And then finally Paul brings this to a close his condemnation of the Jewish false sense of security in verses 28 and 29 where he says for one for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly nor a circumcision outward and physical but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart. That's what he says in Colossians two. It is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. In a statement that echoes what John the Baptist said when he said, "God would raise sons of Israel from our sons of Abraham from these stones." Paul says, "Jewishness is not an outward thing. It is not an outward thing." You are not a Jew simply because you've been circumcised and simply because you have heard the law. He says Jewishness has always been a matter of the heart. It's always been a matter of the heart. You know, again, think about this. Abraham wasn't Jewish. <laughs> I mean, seriously, Abraham was a, a pagan who was pulled from Ur of the Chaldeans. So it was somewhere near where, I guess, modern-day Iraq would be. That's where he came from. He was pulled out of that that life of pagan uh, idolatry, brought by God into the promised land. And it wasn't until Genesis chapter 17 that he is circumcised. Even before that, he was given the covenant in Genesis 15. So he wasn't technically Jewish. The point being that all of this was a matter of the heart. Abraham was a Jew inwardly. His righteousness was granted to him because he he believed God. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham's faith was what saved him. It wasn't his obedience. It wasn't anything, but it was out of that faith that he acted. And it was out of that covenant that God made with Abraham that he then gave him the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. Abraham was a Jew inwardly and so is the one who is the true Jew. The Jew cannot hide from the revelation of the righteous wrath of God behind his national identity. His circumcision isn't going to save him, especially if he doesn't keep the law. His having the law doesn't protect him from his breaking of the law. And God's righteous wrath is coming for the Jew as well as the Gentile. But the good news, of course, again, this is all bad news, right? Paul's still in this bad news section, but the good news is coming. And Lord willing, we'll see in two weeks that there is a righteousness of God that is revealed apart from the law. And that is the righteousness of Christ that is received by faith.